Hey, welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we're seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Nick. I'm Garland. And uh, hey, this whole this podcast has just been a blast. It's been a lot of fun to do this together, and uh, we've gotten a lot of great encouraging emails. We really appreciate the feedback. We also have gotten some great questions asked, and and we just want to invite you. We're, we're starting to kind of look ahead to the next group of questions we're going to tackle, so we encourage you to send stuff in. Um, that is really helpful for us to know what you're thinking about and give us some good ideas of what to talk about. And uh, hey, I did also just want to take this opportunity to thank Kyle McCarthy. He's a voice that you don't get to hear on here, but... Uh, but everything that's happening in this podcast, uh, he helps make it happen. It, it wouldn't be going on without him. He produces this and, and helps uh, helps organize us and helps us not say horrible things. And he keeps us on task and keeps, keeps us, us sounding on, smart to the degree that we do. Yes, he helps <laughs> us say mostly true things, which is really really good. So, he's always in the room with us during these, and he's here right now and hating every minute of the, every minute of this. <laughs> I love uh, anytime I read an introduction to a book, they'll always say something like, this person really helped it help this be a lot better and any mistakes are still my own. So right. let's just say that about Kyle. That's, he helped us be yes. a lot better and anything stupid is still mine and Garland. So, <laughs> um, hey, the, the question we're going to tackle today uh, is, is the question that we get often, why do other churches have different books in their Bibles? And so, you know, we have our, our, in our tradition, we have our 66 books in our Bible, but other churches have Bibles with more books in them. They'll have a section called an Apocrypha or something like that. And uh, so we've talked about other issues around translation and how the Bible came to be in episodes 6, 12, and 14. And we even referenced one of those books um, in episode 22 talking about the book Hanukkah. of Maccabees and Hanukkah. So, so there's some, some background listening you can do if you want to jump in there. But Garland, tell us a little bit about these other books. Well, we got to even define this word apocrypha because it's not a word that we throw around very often and it sounds very mysterious. Uh, and the word just means to hide something away from, uh, to hide it away. And so that's what it means, which we're not exactly sure how that word came to be synonymous with these books. But uh, when we talk here throughout the rest of this particular uh, podcast, we're going to talk specifically about the seven books that most of the time, I think, in, at least in the Western culture we have in mind, when these would be the, the, the seven books that are in the Roman Catholic Bible and that are not in most Protestant Bibles. And uh, those are what usually I think most people, at least in the West, have in mind when we talk about the Apocrypha. And, and so, that, go ahead. I was just saying that, and that that freaks people out a little bit because one of the things we're saying all the time is we want to go to the Bible. Let's go to the right. Bible. That's our authority. Right. And so, to admit, it seems like are we saying we don't know which books belong in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean we, we disagree about that as Christians? And that seems to bring in this whole shakiness about can we trust the Bible if we don't even know what books belong? So it feels like a big deal to yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, really does. So the seven books that are that are in mind, and uh, you can you can go and and Google these things. You can go read them. They're all online. You can go get a, a different Bible with these in them and read them. I've read several of them, and it's really interesting. Here are the, the names of the books. It's the book Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, The Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, and Baruch, which goes with Jeremiah. And so that word means to bless. And so all of these seven books are what we call intertestamental, or some call them deuterocanonical books. But what we mean, what we mean by intertestamental is they are given between our Old and New Testament. Got and it. so frequently we refer to the those as the 400 silent years mm-hmm. between the writing of the Chronicles and our last prophets. 
and then the coming of our New Testament. And these books, most of them sit right in that period. And the question when we ask, the, the question has to be asked when we talk about books of the Bible. And this is really the, the question that matters is which, which, one of, which ones of these are part of the quote canon? Which one of these are part of the canon? So, Nick, just define for us real quickly, what is the canon? How do we make sense of that word? So the word canon is not a strictly, like, Christian or theological term. Right. The word canon means, like, the standard, what what really counts. And so um, we were having some nerdy Star Wars conversations earlier, and it, Star Wars people talk about what stories count as the official Star Wars canon. Yes, they do. When, so, when somebody writes a Star Wars book on the side and they introduce a new fact about Luke we didn't know about, Does that really count? Is that part of the canon? Um, I've gone way too far, so I'm going to just pull it right back in. Um, (laughs) We are really cool. We're we're, we're cool, guys. Um, And so, but that's the idea is it's kind of what's the official stuff, the Mm -hmm. standard that Mm -hmm. that we live by. And so when we talk about theologically the canon, you mean what are the standard texts, the standard scriptures, um, or in simple terms, which writings count as our authoritative Bible? Mm -hmm. Our answer to that question has been and continues to be, these are the words that were inspired by God. Now, I recognize that that brings a category of thought for many people listening to this, especially if I was a skeptical person, mm-hmm. that sounds like circular logic, right? Sure. So these are the ones that are inspired by God, so we include them. How do you know they're inspired by God? Because they're inspired by God, and we recognize that. And I, rec- I, I get that. I get that that can make some of us uncomfortable. Uh, what we're talking about is... If there is a a, a being who is all-powerful and the creator of this universe, the only way I can know anything about this being is if he reveals himself to us in some way. And what we're affirming when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture is that God saw fit in his grace to reveal himself to humanity through language, and he did that through human authors. And that, that's, a, that's a pretty radical claim to make. Right. Um, and we just want to affirm that that's what we're talking about when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture. When it's inspired by God, then it is authoritative. Mm-hmm. When it's inspired by God, then God would see fit to keep it for us, to c- collect it with these other books. He would give us the Bible that we have. God would, he would make for us the book that he wanted us to have, and that's, in fact, the book that we have. And, and that's how the early church understood their task. They didn't see themselves as, hey, let's decide which books we accept. Right. They saw themselves as coming under mm-hmm. these authoritative texts. So they were going, which of these texts show the marks of inspiration? Right. So they didn't see it as the humans are picking our books. They saw it as the books are what books claim that authority over right. our lives? And we talked about this in these previous episodes that we talked to, uh, talked about at the beginning. Now, when it comes to the Apocrypha, we have to make sense of what happened because this can make people feel even more uncomfortable because it seems like in the 1500s, these reformers, we call them the Protestant reformers, guys mm-hmm. like Martin Luther, it seems like they said, we don't want those books, toss them out, and they tossed them. And it, it, when we when we look at it that way, it makes us, it can make us feel really weird about that. Like, so they were with us for 1500 years. These guys in the 1500s said no more and they kicked them out. And so is that what happened? And we have to look through the history to make sense of it. So when we look historically at how this developed, the, these seven books that we're talking about were, were never, they were never accepted as part of this recognized inspiration 
of God. And in fact, there was a Jewish council called the Council of Jamnia that took place in 90 AD. So this would be just about 50 years after the time of Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul would have died about 30 years before this. And at this council, none of these seven books were included or recognized as what we might say, quote, inspired by God. But they were seen as really important books that are worth reading. So just to clarify here, because you're talking about a Jewish council. Correct. In what year? 90 AD. So the books that are in question then are are not necessarily Christian books if non-Christian Jews were oh, discussing yeah. them. Yeah. So can you kind of put them put these these intertestamental books kind of who would have been reading them, where do yeah. they fit? So in these in these years between the exile to Babylon and then the Persians took over Babylon, some of the Jews made their way back to Israel and began to really do a deep dive into their Old Testament. Uh, and some of those people began to write. There's also historical events that took place. That's sure. what the book of Hanukkah or the book of First Second Maccabees is talking about the story of Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. And so people are recording these things. They're recording these historical events. Some of these books are what we might call apocalyptic in nature. They're, they are looking at real life events, but talking about those events through uh, what we might say is metaphorical lens, mm-hmm. much like our book Revelation does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of this going back to Torah, looking at our Old Testament scripture, but writing fresh things is taking place in these 400 years between our Old and New Testament. And they're actually really influential. We can see the echoes of some of this these books in even in our New Testament. So the, the, the book Jude, like mm-hmm. right before Revelation, will allude to one of these intertestamental books. Uh, it's not one of our Apocrypha. It's actually this book called First Ezra. Uh, and so they're going to refer to this there, as, or First Enoch. So they're going to refer to that there. And so when we, when we look at what's going on in this, it's called the Second, Test, uh, Second Temple period, there's, it's not as if no Jews are writing. Right. Like n- none of God's people are writing things. They're writing things, and as they're being written, they're not being affirmed as inspired by God, but still could be really helpful. And probably and really, really popular. Impl- yeah, really popular. Much like in... 20, in 21st century American Christianity, we have really popular books. Right. Um, we have, you know, Mere Christianity is a book that tons of people talk about. People talk about uh, Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. So we have these spiritual kind of classics of our generation um, that people read all the time that we don't make the claim that mm-hmm. there's scripture. Yeah. And so that's what's going on. As the early church begins to put together, what do they recognize as inspired by God? They're having some of the same process that the, the, the Jewish people are having. And they're, they're looking at these same books. And they're also affirming that these seven are not inspired by God, but still really, really important. And so when we look at these particular books, that's sort of the historical record of them. Now, a very interesting thing happened, and this, this is really significant. When it came to being these books being translated, the question became, if we're translating the Bible and putting it into one book, do we translate these and put them in or not? And the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, in the Greek Old Testament, they went ahead and translated them. The Hebrew Old Testament, they did not. So they were making a distinction. When it comes to the Latin translation that was done in the 400s, that question was sitting there as well. And the Latin translators also translated these works. So now, as we're getting fresh translation into you know updated language, the choice to translate them or not almost elevates these seven books to the level of Scripture, because after all, we're translating them right. and placing them there. 
And that begins this process of these seven books becoming equal with or at the level of at the At least kin. put on the shelf with. Yeah, they're, they're translated with, they're put in the same book, uh, the same, we might say the, the, the front and back cover, it's in that collection. Mm-hmm. And so if you give that centuries of time, now these books have been elevated to the level of Scripture. Right. And so we might think of it this way. This is the way that I've tried to say it simply before. What were originally meant to be almost like an appendix to the Old Testament, you put them in there and translate them and talk about them over a millennia, and now what was originally an appendix is now become equal with, we might say, the, the, part, the full part of the story. Uh, and that's really what we're talking about when we talk about these apocryphal works. And what took place in the 1500s in the Protestant Reformation is these reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all these guys, they looked at these books and said, we're trying to get back to the Scripture. What is the inspired Word of God? And these have never been included, so we're cutting them out altogether. Yep. And they made the drastic step of saying, stop translating them, stop reading them, mm-hmm. get rid of them altogether. And that, while I understand the need for that, uh, they sort of threw baby out with bathwater. And, and what, we, what we lose in that is there's some really cool stuff in First and Second yeah. Maccabees that helps us understand what would a first century Jew in Jesus' day be thinking mm-hmm. as he looks up and sees Roman oppressors? Well, the, uh, what Maccabees teaches us would inform us a little bit about how that Jew would be living. And so they can be really helpful mm-hmm. to read, but they're not inspired by God. It kind of reminds me of, uh, I had a professor one time who he described growing up, the the small church he went to, everyone taught from a cur- certain kind of study Bible called the Schofield Reference right. Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said that they would, the preacher would say, this is what the verse says, and here's what the Schofield Reference note says. And everyone had Schofield Reference Bibles. And for them, the Schofield notes were practically part of their scriptures. Right. And he had to grow up and separate out mm-hmm. the Schofield reference notes from the yeah. text itself. So you're kind of saying that's what they had with this little appendix. Yeah. It got, and so what the reformers did was they felt like they were returning. They were arguing, rightly so, that they were returning to the original scriptural text. Yeah. yeah. And it's, but, but maybe the overstep I hear you saying is instead of going back to the distinction between Scripture and helpful, they actually just threw the helpful all the way out. All the way out. Yeah. yeah. And so... While I appreciate the desire to say, what is our inspired texts? That's a, that's a thing that we really need to know and have a good answer to. Um, these things are really interesting, and they're part of uh, the, the narrative of the, the world that Jesus and Paul and the disciples are living in and growing up in, and to that, they can be informative for us. Now, we haven't talked at all about some of the other books and some of the other works. I call some of these other ones the Da Vinci Code Apocrypha. Okay. So if you read the Da Vinci Code or saw the Da Vinci Code, then they're going to bring all these New Testament books in, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. There's a book called The Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistle Epistle of Barnabas, and all these different New Testament books. And just to use Thomas as a good example, we'll use the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, the way that the Da Vinci Code portrayed, and I know you you have talked about this. We've talked about this before over lunch. The way that the Da Vinci Code was portrayed. Yes, this is the stuff we talk about. We over talk lunch. about. Besides Star Wars, it's this. Uh, the way that the Da Vinci Code portrayed how the early church thought about the Scripture is the most overstated, ridiculous presentation of what was going on. While it was compelling, and every time that movie is on TNT, I do watch it. Oh, it's entertaining. I can't help but get sucked into that and National Treasure. While I appreciate <laughs> that kind of movie, the presentation was just wildly 
unfair. And what we might say, even about the Gospel of Thomas, which has gotten the most amount of you know air airtime in the like the Western culture now, the Gospel of Thomas is so separated from anything remotely sounding Jewish, which yep. is the culture that Paul and Jesus and all these guys are growing up in, that it reads so Greek, so second century Greek in the the what most people would say is it reads very Gnostic, mm-hmm. which is a whole other podcast, that to, to have that be what Jesus was thinking would be such a jump mentally yeah. that it just, it, it doesn't hardly, it doesn't hardly come close to the Jesus that we see in scripture and uh, the Jesus that would be set in first century Israel. And so we're, 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 the gospel of Thomas is just, it's not looked at as, as remotely viable to be one of the gospels written by first century Jew as one, much as Dan Brown might want to portray it that way. One, one New Testament scholar um, that we've read said, suggested it this way. He said, you have, you have the four Gospels that we have in our Bible that present a very Jewish picture of Jesus meeting Jewish Old Testament expectation. And then you have the Gospel of Thomas who presents Jesus sounding a lot like a Greek philosopher. Right. And he said, now just put on your historical common sense. What makes most sense about the carpenter's son in Nazareth? that he lived a very Jewish life and later someone tried to make him sound Greek or that he sounded Greek and later somebody tried to make him sound Jewish. And four different people four different that people the church did to- affirm <laughs> were all wrong in their presentation of Jesus. It's just a, it's a, it's, it was such a one-sided way to present that. Yep. And, uh, uh, it made for a great movie and it a great did. book. Uh, but uh, it, Tom Hanks also helps that out. He's, a very, he's such a good actor. So uh, <laughs> with that in mind, I think that what we might affirm, what we might say is this. And, and as Christians, we begin our worldview with two great assumptions, that God exists and he's revealed himself, and that God gave us the book he wanted us to have. And we believe that, and we stake our claim on that. Well, that's that's helpful and clarifying, and so um, I think it should give us great confidence that the text we have in front of us is the text that God uh, revealed himself through. So, hey, thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discuss why other churches have different books in their Bibles. We encourage you to look into this even more and recommend the books Old Testament Textual Criticism by Ellis Brotsman and Eric Tully and Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.